humans, welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. We're your hosts, Lauren and Adam. We dive headfirst into conversations breaking down things like religion and purity culture, sex, spirituality, and the world around us. Although we now consider ourselves to be somewhere between agnosticism and mystical atheism, we often speak from our experiences from our time spent in the Christian music industry and religious upbringing. We bring on a variety of guests to hear their story and help demystify topics that we were once taught to fear or ignore, expanding the lenses through which we see the world. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have the decolonized Christian. He grew up in Western Canada, a homeschooled kid from an evangelical Christian home. While this taught him a biased worldview from a very conservative Christian lens, he developed a love for learning, reading, and asking questions outside of the box. This inevitably led him to a journey of deconstructing his faith while also becoming a pastor and working in a church. He's passionate about church history educating Christians about the ways white supremacy has dominated the Western church and caused harm in decolonial theologies. Decolonized Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. We're so (laughs) excited. So, I mean, that being said, you know, the very get-go, everyone's used to us introducing all of our guests and saying, you know, whoever their name is, welcome to the podcast. And you choose to (laughs) remain anonymous. And I was wondering if we could just kind of jump into that as to, you know, you had mentioned um, that you didn't want to, uh, it wasn't about you, your Instagram and your work wasn't about you. So um, if we could just begin there. Yeah, let's begin there. Um, (laughs) So I stay anonymous, I guess, for a variety of reasons, but one of the, one of the big reasons, and I, you know, I, I, I debate it all the time. Like there's been several times I've considered revealing who I am and just kind of, um, yeah, just being, I guess, unsure of this stance, but, um, I choose to stay anonymous because I can't claim the term decolonizing for myself because I am a white male Mm -hmm. and specifically a white cisgendered male who, um, benefits from white supremacy. And so my page is directed specifically for um, fellow white citizens like myself who are on a journey to decolonize their Christianity. And the reason I call myself the decolonized Christian and stay anonymous is so that um, I can bring everyone along on my own journey of how I am learning and growing, because that's honestly what the page is really about. And to be honest, like the decolonized Christian is more like the goal, right. not, yeah. um, not exactly who I am. It's like, that's the, the goal. And I think that's a lifelong journey that will always be um, moving towards, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I personally really admire, uh, admire the fact that you remain anonymous, um, I, especially because the decolonization work and um it should be centered around the voices uh, of those who are marginalized and oppressed in the 
people of color, uh, black indigenous people of color. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate that. I don't know if you actually knew this. Um, I'm indigenous. Um, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, I don't always post about it. It's not on our Instagram or anything. So, um, but I have included it in some of our episodes and, um, yeah, so my, my tribe's actually in Canada. Um, I am Ojibwe and, Mm. Um, I'm also Otomi, which is Mexican indigenous. So from Canada to Mexico. Um, but yeah, mm. anyway, so I can, I can really appreciate the work that you're mm. doing. So, you well, know, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you've obviously gotten a lot. I, when I go to people's accounts too, you know, I see who they're following and who's following them and, um, you can, you surround yourself with good people. So, um, yeah. I applaud you there as well. Well, thank you so much. So, but even though you remain anonymous, okay, you're open about your race. I, I was looking through your verbiage and you do say, you know, we, including yourself in whenever you're speaking of white people, um, mm-hmm. how, how does that work for you? You're a white guy with a decolonizing Christ, Christianity account. Um, and although you are anonymous, how, how does that work for you? Where do you get your information, if you will? and gather mm-hmm. the inspiration. Yeah, so uh, being in Canada, I guess we, and, and specifically from the province of British Columbia, which is the westernmost province of Canada, um, we are surrounded by many, many Indigenous nations, and we have um, more nations in our province than anywhere else in Canada combined, okay. and more languages too. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I've always had a curiosity kind of growing up um, and living really close to a lot of reserves and um, just and knowing a lot of people um, who are Indigenous and having neighbors who are Indigenous and different things. And um, just I always had a curiosity. I think that was like the big thing. Um, and then just realizing a lot of the injustices that are inflicted upon Indigenous people. Like, why do reserves in Canada have, most of them don't have clean drinking water? And it's like asking questions like that. Like, what's going on, even on a systemic level, like from the government down? And um, so there's there's always just been a curiosity there. And then um, as I was learning more about uh, Christianity, like I went to school and studied Christianity and like went to Bible college and did the whole, the whole thing, got a degree in that. And, um, just learning about the doctrine of discovery and understanding how, um, Christianity was literally a a means for colonization, like a tool used to colonize indigenous people specifically. Right. And so that sort of spearheaded a lot of my um, deconstruction journey, I guess, you know, uh, going back even several years before I knew it was deconstruction. I was, I was always, um, just very passionate about exposing the ways that Christianity can cause harm to people, specifically indigenous people. And so, um, as I began to actually deconstruct my faith as well, and in using that term, um, I began reading a lot more and that's sort of, I guess, where I get most of my information now. I read a lot of books. That's kind of my, kind of my area where I, I spend a lot of time Yeah. and yeah, I listen to books and podcasts and really just try to learn. I, I, I want to be a student of this. You know what I mean? Like right. 
I'm not an expert. I'm learning and I've got a long way to go. And um, I just want to share a bit of what I'm learning. And that's yeah. kind of where the heart for my page comes from. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I feel like that's pretty akin to the way that our page is run is that it's it's us sharing our journey. It's it's literally mm-hmm. the things that we're discovering, the things we're reading and researching and having conversations about. That's what mm-hmm. makes its way onto our page. It's not a landing space for people who have fully deconstructed and arrived at deconstruct.pod on Instagram. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. It, it really is just a documentation of our journey and trying to pay tribute to those people that we have had the pleasure of receiving that information and that insight from. And you had mentioned that at one point you were in service as a pastor and that your mm-hmm. deconstruction happened after college. So I'm, I'm curious where, where did, um, where did your deconstruction land among your, your time pastoring? Oh, well, throughout the whole thing, like I'm actually still pastoring, which yeah. is an interesting thing, right? So I'm, uh, I'm still in a local church and um, I still like, I'm someone who still believes in the local church. And, and yet I know that like, I see a lot of things too within the local church that I would love to see change happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm so blessed to be around some amazing coworkers and other pastors and people who are kind of on a similar journey. And it's just been really, really encouraging in that sense. So yeah, not many people get to be in church spaces like that and be honest with the journey that they're Mm -hmm. on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think, yeah, just it's, it's been an, it's been a very interesting experience kind of navigating deconstruction and what that looks like specifically in a church space. And I'm someone who works specifically with the young adult, uh, kind of population. So a lot of like people in college career age mm. and um, you know, the, a lot of them are already wrestling with so much, like they're, they're questioning things they're um, learning new things in school. And it's, I love when people ask questions and I, I, uh, I try to encourage people to ask good questions. And I think even in terms of deconstruct, uh, not just deconstructing, but decolonizing specifically, I think we need to, be free to ask questions and be free to doubt because colonizing theology wants it all boxed up, right? It, it doesn't want you to yeah. think for yourself or think beyond, you know, the confines of what it says, right? I mean, that's how it is colonizing. It's controlling. It's trying to, yeah, it's trying to control the narrative. Yeah. Decolonization and deconstruction usually happen in the reverse order in which you even mentioned for your experience, a lot mm. of people will start on their deconstruction journey and then they'll realize, oh, wow, there's so much here, you know, the damage that's been done. You know, like you said, even specifically to indigenous people. And, um, it, but for you, it was kind of backwards, like decolonization and, um, realizing the harm and realizing the things that you needed to to pay attention to led you to more uh, to the religious side of it, the theology side of it, which is like the deconstruction, I, I as I would call it. Um, mm-hmm. So for those who haven't, maybe somebody who's listening and 
has only heard of deconstruction and maybe they're brand new to what decolonizing might be. Can you describe what that is? Oh, yeah. How do I? There's so much. That's such a broad term, decolonizing. Yeah. Um, I mean, decolonizing is specifically to do with, I think it's very much linked to dismantling white supremacy yeah. and understanding how our entire Western system, our entire, like, the beast we've created <laughs> of mm. the Western world, right, is completely based on white supremacy. Yeah. And it's founded on stolen land and stolen labor, right? And like that's our that's the story of certainly Canada and America. It's you know, slavery and it's genocide of indigenous peoples. And right. that is so connected to Christianity, this doctrine of discovery, which was so same year as Columbus, 1492, um, a papal bull, which was basically a, um, the Pope wrote this, the Pope had a ton of power. Um, the Pope and the King had lots and lots of power. And together they wrote this papal bull that gave the King of Spain, I believe it was, the power to discover lands for God. And that's where, of course, Columbus was Spanish, right? And so he came across and discovered, you know, quote unquote, discovered (laughs) a land that had already been inhabited for tens of thousands of years, right? And took that land and put, and that whole idea of even ownership of land, right? Like the indigenous way isn't about ownership of land. It's that it's almost like the, it's the opposite. It's like the land owns us. Like we belong to the land. Mm. Like we're connected to the land. It's reciprocity, right? And this idea that you can control the land and you can fence it up and own it, right? That became the, the white way essentially, right? The, rugged individualism that formed out of that, mm-hmm. right? The, I, I can possess this for me and I can put up my fence and then this is my space and over there is your space, right? That's, that is the whole construct that was created through this white system. And so um, as a result, I, I know in Canada, we talk a ton about how Canada is all like completely, all of the land is unseated, which essentially means like, it was never purchased legally from indigenous people. Like it was, it was indigenous land. And then it suddenly became the crown land, you know, based on, because we're connected to the crown here in Canada. We're part of the British Commonwealth. So yeah, everything, like all the public land that we, that we see, we, even the term for it is crown land here. And it's, um, yeah. And it's all unseated. And so that's, uh, kind of a little bit of where so decolonizing is learning this first of all i think you know i think a lot of people don't realize this they don't realize the history of where this came from and where like possession of land came from all that stuff right we don't realize that history and i think part of the first step of decolonizing is the education aspect just learning about the history and then even sitting with it and having to grieve it and realizing you know we are we are products of this system and we benefit from it greatly at the expense of others. Yeah. That's, that's that to me, it seems like 
the primary driver of decolonization versus deconstruction work is is that it is systemic and it is social like yeah decolonization starts on the outside it starts i mean especially um from you and i both coming from white spaces um Mm -hmm. realizing that there's that there's been injustice and moving from a place of that and and the deconstruction coming from a place of introspection and and breaking down theology and breaking down what what the world means for you specifically and what and what rules and guidelines you use to follow in your own life to decide your own path and i think that's yeah. so i i think that's so um it's so in line with what it is that you're doing and i love i love that that even even in the anonymity of what you're doing, you're decentering whiteness and and mm. and moving from a place of uh, uh, trying to um, trying to pay trying to pay back and pave new roads um, mm-hmm. for for people who don't benefit from white supremacy and trying mm-hmm. to give uh, facilitate spaces um, for other white folks and and to 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 be able to to say hey here are the places that we've messed up here are the places that we need to uh course correct but then yeah. also but then also allowing space um for other christians or even non-believers to say hey look here's here's something practical here's here are some actual ideologies that we can put in place that we can start moving forward and empowering mm-hmm. people to actually be able to operate in in equal egalitarian spaces yeah yeah exactly and like i think for one of the things i really love to focus on is just imagining what it could be you know what i mean like yes it's like is this the best we can do is this really the best we can do you know what i mean like yeah how what could you know we're 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 creative beings we we have you know, I, I believe that's like the power of the divine within all of us. You know, we we have the ability to think up new things and create new stuff. And like when the divide keeps growing between those who are rich and those who are poor, the haves and the have-nots, you know, I, I just, I wonder, like, really, is this the best we can do? And I think, you know, if decolonizing is not just about burning down the whole thing, even though like, I mean, sometimes I just really want the whole thing to burn down, you know, yeah. but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's about creating something new. I think it's about imagining a world as it should be. And I, you know, we need that. We desperately, you know, we're in the midst of a climate crisis where, you know, different climate data is saying that, you know, some of the, even in my own province of British Columbia, some, some people are saying that, in the next 10 years, the areas around the low-lying parts of the ocean are not going to be livable in 10 years' time. And I'm like, wow. you know, this is this is a crisis and we need to really start, you know, putting our heads together. And, you know, I, I think decolonizing is absolutely vital to that. You know, like, I think, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but I believe that Indigenous owned land so indigenous territories like lands that are still possessed by indigenous people not even possessed because that's not the way that they would word it but um lands that belong to indigenous people are 
shrinking rapidly, and yet mm. it holds over 80% of the world's biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that is like just a shocking, shocking number to me. Like, to me, it's like the indigenous way is literally what will save humanity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And yeah, I just. I think that's why this work is so important. And I, I, I believe everyone should be on board with it. You know, like every white person should be wanting to decolonize because I think our future depends on it. Right. Well, and there's this, there's this drive. Uh, I, well, I can't even say drive, but there, it comes to this complex where as a white person in white spaces, I, my immediate reaction to, to, starting to understand what white supremacy really means and what living in a in a place where I am benefited because of my whiteness, my immediate reaction was to want to step out of the spotlight and be silent. And I think I think there is I think there's a validity to that. But I think there's also there's also a responsibility to manage the 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 privilege that we mm. have been given. I think I think to step out of the spotlight and to forgo any sort of attention or any sort of power is is irresponsible and I think it's and I think it's lazy and mm. I love that you have kind of moved into this place of 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 divesting that power and putting in the work that it takes to actually be able to um spread out a little bit of that um to actually be able to empower other people. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think, I think a lot actually about power. And like, I think power is actually a really good thing, you know, when it's used the right way. You know, how, how are we using power? Is it for ourselves? Are we hoarding it? Are we trying to build ourselves up? Or are we using our power to empower others? Are we using yeah. it to, um, to make change, right? Um, or to call out injustices where where necessary, and you know, like I, um, I I mentioned on my on my profile that I uplift both anti-colonial and post-colonial voices. Um, post-colonial voices are those who are specifically in a Western context, Black and Indigenous voices, right? People who are from like tip have historically been oppressed in the West here. Yeah. Right. But we can all be an anti-colonial voice. Right. And that's where, that's where I think for white people, we have an opportunity to step up and actually speak out and use our power and use our influence to, um, to spur on change and to educate people and to actually not center ourselves, but to center others. And those who've been saying this stuff for a really long time. Yeah. I love that you brought up, you know, the work of um, decolonization in the in the sense of um, basically taking care of the, the planet and the earth. Um, because for indigenous peoples, like the land is the most sacred thing. Mm -hmm. um, it is our home and it is our life source. It's everything. Um and I love that you talked about that because, you know, as, as I'm, of course I'm listening and of course I'm decolonizing as well. And, um, as we all should be, and just listening to 
just the words that you're saying, it seems that, you know, the it's not that there's like these one, two, three, four steps, but I was just hearing in case anyone wanted kind of a, a, a review of that, you know, it's how to decolonize is by educating yourself by letting yourself grieve what you, what may need, what may need to be grieved, reimagining yeah. a future and then and making steps towards creating that new future and that new world. Yeah. Um, and so I love that you you brought that up and that's practical. But I also mm-hmm. want to talk about specifically, which is the title of the Instagram account you you run, mm-hmm. Decolonized Christian. How why why decolonize Christianity? I want to talk about that for a second. Like why why is that the, the topic that you want to talk about? Why is it Christianity specifically? Oh, there's so many. There's that's such a loaded question because there's so much there. Um, yeah. So Christianity has, as I said, I alluded to, it's been weaponized and used for colonization. It's Christianity's been imperialized ever since. I mean, arguably even before the time of Emperor Constantine, but um, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was the largest superpower empire the world had known up until that point in time. And so um, what happened was the real Christianity, which Jesus, basically the way of Jesus, like what Jesus came and taught and how he lived and how he told his followers to live, that essentially died when it became imperialized because it, right. the idea of gospel was always in opposition to empire, right? Because right? gospel was a, a term that Jesus didn't invent. It was a Roman term. It was the good news of Rome, right? It was propaganda. And Rome would come and conquer a region and they would essentially colonize people and say, you know, good news, you will be saved if you confess that Caesar is Lord and believe in him as the son of God. Wow. They want to make good citizens, right? They want to make people who will pay taxes to Caesar. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is looking at that and seeing how people are being robbed, right? They're being robbed of their lifestyles. They're being robbed of their land. They're being robbed of their finances. And he's like, let me tell you some other good news, you know, another way. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, that's the whole gospel of Mark in a nutshell. And like the gospel of Mark is one of my very favorite books because Mark 1, 1 is probably the most political verse in the Bible. It says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the most loaded political yeah, statement. Well. <laughs> like it's so like, it's so remarkable when you think about it. Like, and we just, we're so far removed from that reality that we don't realize like what that means. And, you know, Mark also says, there's a verse in Mark that says, um, Jesus preached good news to all creation. And that I think is what decolonized Christianity is in a nutshell. It's good news for all creation, Mm -hmm. not just humanity, not just the animals. It's good news for the land it's good news for the earth it's good news for everything yeah and that is i think the very heart of what jesus was doing and that's why i believe so strongly 
like in that still, you know what I mean? Like, I I think Christianity needs reclaiming Mm. in like a huge way because it's become this powerful machine that works for the benefit of, you know, basically I said this on a, on a post a little while ago, but I said that the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Rome has existed forever, but it's been disguised as the gospel of Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we need to reclaim the gospel of Jesus, but it has to be distinguished from the gospel of empire. Yeah. You said, I, I, I wrote it down because I, I love, I love little sentences and phrases that are a little inflammatory, but like they just slap <laughs> you in the face. Um, you said Jesus became a mascot for the myth of the Christian empire. Mm. And I was like, damn, that's right. Yeah. Like, that's true. <laughs> like, at what point did it get twisted that God was found al- alongside the oppressed and the marginalized to now God and Jesus represent the majority and the the most? Like, like how did we turn this into a football game? Like, how did we turn God into the winner that it makes sense that that Christianity is the most popular religion in mm-hmm. in Europe and in the States? Like, how, how did yeah. that become normal? How did How did we normalize... Christianity mm-hmm. to 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 marginalize those that don't go along with the narrative. Yeah, I think I think it. I mean, some would argue that imperialism and Christianity kind of started before this time. But in the year, I think it was three twenty three A.D. was the year that Constantine, Emperor Constantine, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Mm. And you know, interesting fact about Constantine: he refused to be baptized until his deathbed. Because he knew he couldn't be emperor and a Christian. (laughs) It just doesn't work, right? Like, you can't be both. And so, you know, last minute before he dies, he decides to be baptized. Oh, my God. But that's, you know, that's really what happened, right? I mean, ever since that point in time, you've got, you go through history, you've got the Crusades shortly after that. You've got the Inquisitions. You've got... Oh, you know, well, Doctrine of Discovery was a big one. Um, right. You know, arguably, I mean, so many wars that were fought over the name of, you know, who's God, right? Like, right. Um, and then I, even even world the world wars in a lot of ways were, there was a lot of Christian ties to those as well. Right. So is it even possible to reclaim Christianity or is that what Christianity is and we're just trying to reclaim Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I don't know. I honestly that's a that's a something I wrestle with a lot. I, I don't know if Christianity can be reclaimed. Um I think what Christianity means for a lot of people in different parts of the world that actually experience oppression is like there's something to be held on to there. But yeah, in the West, I don't know if it I don't know if that term can be reclaimed. Right. I, I do wrestle with it. I think the earliest followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that terminology. I'm like, because it, it connotates something. It, it, it connotates a, a lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just about right thinking or right belief. It's a very embodied way of being in the world, being present in the world and speaking out against injustices. Like, I mean, the very heart of Christianity is a meal, you know, it's like, the Eucharist, the body broken and the blood that was shed kind of thing, right? But it was like, 
the earliest church, they practiced that by actually feeding the poor and allowing them to like eat the best food first and literally practicing that. Like it wasn't just about the symbolism. It was a literal feeding of poor people. Well, and I think too, <laughs> like I think decolonizing Christianity, just from what you just said and, and something that I've, uh, I was actually, we were talking with somebody a while back that abandoning faith is a privilege mm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to decolonize Christianity, I feel like I feel like the reason that that's important work is because those that have been marginalized need hope. They need a savior. They needed yeah. Jesus to be real because outside of that there is not really hope for equality. There's not hope for any sort of uh, benefit or growth for their family or for their people outside Mm of having some sort of hope, whether that's Christianity itself or whether that's indigenous spiritual beliefs or that's uh, Buddhism or, or Islam or whatever that, that faith is. I think, I think decolonizing while trying to reclaim the faith is an important piece of that because to be able to Mm. say, I don't need faith. I don't need my religion anymore is, is in and of itself a very privileged space to come from. And granted, Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a healthy place to be able to also find at some point in your life. um, Because some people do have a lot of traumas and a lot of, uh, Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of uh, social impact on, uh, of claiming Christianity and of, or whatever faith it is that, that you were raised in. And so I think there, there can be, and is a lot of really important work to be done in deconstructing your faith and potentially letting that faith go. But also I do think it's so important to understand that kind of what you were alluding to earlier, decolonizing while maintaining faith is Mm. also so important for people who are marginalized and oppressed. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, you know, I, completely resonate with people who walk away altogether. Like I wrestle with that myself, to be honest. Like there are some days I'm like, Oh, this would just be so much easier if I just walked away from all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think what you said is just, it's so that's so on point. Like that is there. They hold to their faith because there's so much hope in it. Right. There's so much, there's so much there. It's like, yeah, it's it's hard to even explain, right? But yeah. it's it's um if especially the liberating aspects of it, I think, right? There's and I find a lot of a lot of people who have been marginalized or have experienced poverty or oppression, they hold to the liberating elements of the gospel, right? Like or of whatever faith they be, they have or hold to, right? Um it's very much based in restoration or in deliverance, right? Or in righting of wrongs, or even this idea of like the last will be first and the first will be last. Like right. it's like those elements of um, of faith, I think, are so important. And I, I just looking at the life of Jesus, or even the life of, um, yeah, like you said, Buddha, or 
even someone like Martin Luther King Jr., right, who truly kind of embodied that, um, you know, and like MLK obviously paid for it with his life too, and as did Jesus. Uh, But living into something that's so much bigger than themselves and yet moving towards the liberation of their people, right? I think that's, that's how... Um, people find so much hope in that. And I think also on the flip side, that's where a lot of people stuck in imperial Christianity completely miss it, right? We, we, we disembody our faith from the real, the real world, the real world implications of what our faith means, right? If there's no liberation, then what's the whole point of it? Just to get to the afterlife, just to mm-hmm. maintain our power, right? Like, right. If it doesn't have lasting change, it then what's the point, you know? Yeah. It's something that you you like said briefly was one of the ways that like the early church existed was by feeding the hungry and feeding them good food first. And I know that's something that you it kinda has wrapped up a lot of the things that you've talked about. Um the a post you recently made about, you know, the last will be first and the first will be last. Um, and that's, that's in the Bible and several times. Why, why was that? Why is that phrase so important for you to make an entire post specifically on the many times that that shows up? Why is that so significant? I think it's so significant because I think that's actually what the gospel is. Like I, I, I think we've turned the good news of Jesus into something that, like I said, is so disembodied, so like abstract when it, when read in its first century context in contrast to the gospel of Rome, it quite literally had like immediate results. You know what I mean? Like it's, no wonder Jesus's movement grew, grew so quickly because of how like opposite it was the gospel of Rome, like how opposite it was dominance and conquer and colonize and, you know, taxes and land theft and all of that. Right. Um, oppressed people were mad. They wanted to pick up the sword. They wanted to fight back against Caesar and, what Jesus is doing is giving oppressed people back their dignity. Um, I, I'm really, I really like the work of Walter Wink where he writes about uh, Jesus's third way teachings in the gospels. So like uh, for instance, in the sermon on the Mount um, there's like the phrases, uh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give the coat off your back. Well, those, those terms are actually third way, like nonviolent resistance terms. They're not, they're not just simply pacifism or like just taking a beating just because kind of thing. It's intentionally trying to expose the injustice of the system. So for instance, um, take the coat off your back. Mm. What you are doing is like, it's like, okay, so the court takes the court orders that you have to give up, you know, whatever it is, your tunic first to give them your coat as, or your cloak as well. Um, that's essentially meaning like you are just going to expose the injustice of the system by stripping down naked and walking out of the court. Mm. 
And in that culture, in that day and age, that would have been like seen as like, not an offense to the person who was naked, but to the people that were stripping them naked, that would have been like a blatant, like offense to them. You know what I mean? It's, it's shaming, it's shaming those people. And so those are like what those, those phrases are about. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving, he's, he's trying to help people think outside the box and creatively think of how they can resist the empire, how they can resist these, these systems that are oppressing them. Mm. And so I, no wonder that the movement rose so quickly, especially among women, especially among, um, people who had very little, like Samaritans and other people like in those areas that had very little, um, or they, they experienced a lot of marginalization and oppression. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I've really enjoyed, um, going through your your feed and the work that you do um and like I mentioned I do I do appreciate inflammatory phrases so I do want to bring up another uh if that's oh yeah (laughs) um so I I love when you said um refusing to tell the truth is fascist (laughs) because that's quite inflammatory so what 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 does that mean oh boy yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> so I have to give some credit to um, Jason Stanley's book. It's called How Fashion How Fascism Works, mm. and I've been I've just finished reading that. I am I like I love politics. That's kind of just a a sphere of like of, of interest I've always had. I like reading political science. I love studying history and how it's tied to all those things. And um, one of the things with that comes with truth, right? Like when we, well, specifically how fascism works. Um, Fascism creates a specific truth narrative that dominates over other truth narratives, right? It's, it's all about um, propping up the myth of nationalism or the myth of a certain empire. I mean, we saw this in Germany in the 1930s. It was the Um, the whole movement with Hitler and the Nazi party and whatever. But it was this idea that, you know, um, it's, it's, tra- it's essentially, let's make Germany great again. They, they um, you know, if we're going to use the terminology, that's basically what it was because they were economically devastated after World War One, and then the Great Depression hit and it really, really negatively impacted the German people, right? I mean, they, so many of them went into poverty. They were um, just economically devastated. They, you know, other countries around the world had imposed sanctions on them as punishment for World War One, and, um, and so naturally there was this like movement to try to create more pride in being German, mm. right? And so in, in so doing that, um, these truth narratives came up that really propped up this specific nationalist view of being German, which was very detrimental to those who were Jewish, obviously. Um, And eventually one thing led to another and we had World War II. (laughs) But um, I think we see this happening often now in the West by you know, whether or not it's patriotic history or it's um, 
just telling history through one lens and celebrating holidays a certain way we do, like, um, that props up a certain narrative, right, over while actually pushing a lot of the truth under the rug, like, oh, we don't want to talk about dark parts of our history, right? We don't want to talk about the genocide or the um, the land theft that took place when Columbus landed. We don't want to talk about, um, the, for in Canada, and I know in, in America too, but the, the residential school system where Indigenous children were literally taken from their reserves in order to, quote-unquote, rid the Indian out of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is the kind of dark history that we don't really like to talk about. And fortunately, like we're, we are talking about these things a lot more now, which is really good. But I know there's, there has been in recent years a push to continue to ignore that narrative and to push that narrative down. And I think that's what I mean by that statement we're talking about um, with truth and fascism. Like it, we, it continues to prop up white supremacy, right? It's a truth narrative that continues to prop up the myths that benefit some people at the expense of others. Right. Well, and I feel like maybe we can coin the term microfascism. Yeah. Because because honestly, as as you're talking through all of this stuff, there's kind of been this idea notion that's kind of been rolling through my mind recently that gone unchecked i think this deconstruction of white evangelical spaces can itself also contain a lot of microfascism because mm-hmm. because the black christian church in america has been doing this work since the 60s and before there yep. there people have already been retranslating the Bible and rereading it through different lenses because they have already been oppressed. They have already been traumatized. They've already been marginalized by Christianity and they wanted to continue claiming it. And so the work has already started and Mm -hmm. the work has been done in Hispanic communities, um, even with Catholicism and and, in reclaiming what it means to be a Christian. Um, And I think there has just been this clearly social boom of deconstruction that there's so many white evangelicals and we were talking I, I I don't remember who it was we were talking with but um those of us that are evangelical and specifically white evangelical do tend to be the people that are still making these social media platforms to to boost the visibility of deconstruction we're still evangelizing hmm. and yeah, I think so true and that was I was David yeah, that's word. right. Um, and I just, I, I think it's so important. And I think, I think it could be to detriment to the deconstruction movement if it's not, if it's not properly dealt with, that we are stepping into a stream that has been started and has been driven and has been created by people of color. And yeah. to jump in and to, and to create this movement out of it called deconstruction, mm-hmm. called unraveling, called progressive Christianity, whatever it is, I think is is still white supremacist. Yeah, in, in, 100%. In, in maybe small ways, but also I think in really important ways. Yeah. 
Hey everyone, want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, yeah, it's like we it, in in a lot of ways you can, I, I've heard it said, you can trade one form of basically fundamentalism for another, right? It's like, you're proselytizing still and you're trying to (laughs) you think you're creating you know something totally new when in fact this has been happening like this frame this white supremacy frame of christianity basically um or imperial christianity whatever we want to call it um it hasn't been working for so many people right like it, it's, it excludes, right? It, it's not welcoming for everybody. I think of those in the LGBTQ plus community or um, black or indigenous folks or um, yeah, just, just anyone who it doesn't fit, like they don't fit the mold, right? Of this imperialistic, um, nationalistic, um, capitalistic action really i mean all those yeah all those terms that's that's what christianity's become right and um it doesn't work for everybody and so that right there i mean there's been people resisting that since the very beginning you know even since constantine there was the you know there was the desert fathers and mothers they fled into the desert and they res- they did not want to be associated with the empire whatsoever and then you've got these movements throughout the ages. You've got people like St. Francis. You've got, you know, um, a lot of the, like someone like Joan of Arc, who was <clears throat> in the in the Inquisitions, right? Standing up against the injustices that was happening there. Um, you go through the ages, you know, and then someone like Martin Luther King as well. Um, you know, you go through the ages and those are people who do not fit the white Western mold of Christianity at all. And yet somehow we end up like sainting them or like twisting their stories to fit our narrative. Like it's, it's bizarre, but yeah, I think there's a serious danger of claiming deconstruction, like for white people claiming deconstruction as like their thing, or it's like the new thing. Um, and I have to, I'm speaking to myself on this too, right? Like this is, <laughs> this applies to me. <laughs> and I think I have to be so careful even with my page that I'm, you know, not trying to convert people to my way of thinking and stuff too, right? And that's one of the reasons I, I try to word things the way I do and, you know, just to to invite, it's more of an inviting people along on a journey rather than trying to like force something down someone's throat, you know? Mm. Because we've been so embedded in this idea that we have to think the correct things and think the right way in order to be saved, in order to whatever, right, (laughs) in terms of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I think we end up kind of taking those embedded beliefs, even on a, from a, a, a subconscious level, and we start using those tools or those means or whatever to try to do the exact same thing in the opposite direction. Yeah. Do you know, or do you assume that most of the people consuming your work are white? Because whenever you say you speak with the verbiage, we, 
when you're speaking mm-hmm. of white, I mean, you are, I mean, that's, that makes sense. But, you know, as I'm thinking through again, cause I was just reviewing like, okay, if I'm somebody who's listening to this, I'm like, what am I taking away from this? But I'm thinking, what am I taking away from this as an indigenous person? What is mm. a white person taking away from this? What is a black person taking away from this? I'm trying to think like, I, I'm not assuming mm-hmm. that everyone listening or consuming your work is white. So where yeah. does that leave the 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 folks who are not? Uh, good question. Um, I I have to be careful because I don't want to necessarily speak for people who um, are not white because I, I think that's been that's mm-hmm. happened so so many times so frequently throughout yeah. history right yeah. we've we've spoken for everybody thinking and that's how we kind of tend to whitewash things by doing that but right. um i really appreciate the work of willie jennings he's a probably my favorite theologian specifically but he's he he focuses on decolonial theologies as well and he 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 talks about white supremacy and whiteness and he says the thing about whiteness is that it's inclusive, not exclusive. And he's like, anyone can be white, no matter your skin color, no matter, you know, it's, it's, it's inclusive. <laughs> and so I think if we all sat back and realized, you know, at some, to some level, most of us in the West do benefit from mm-hmm. these systems of white supremacy that mm-hmm. exist around us. Right. And I think, in that sense, I think we can all learn something and we can all take something from that, right? Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be speaking for, <laughs> for Black or Indigenous people because that's not, it's not really my place to do so. And I know that they don't experience the same, not even close to the same level of um, benefit as, say, myself. Yeah, so. yeah. And do you, do you ever have, um, like, a guest posts or anything like that on your on your Instagram? Not at this point, I don't. I'm that's something I really want to think kind of forward thinking. I'm wanting to do more of that. Mm. Um I'm yeah, I'm I'm really hoping I can spend more energy kind of um imagining new things and new possibilities for the page and even going beyond just Instagram. Yeah. But um thinking of ways that we can actually practice this stuff in the world like how can we go Mm. about doing that rather than just posting about it exactly yeah so i'm uh yeah i'm in the works on some ideas in that regard that's amazing i love that i mean that's part of the reimagining part again i just want to like for anyone who's (laughs) listening like those the things that we talk talked about with decolonizing is educating yourself grieving what needs to be grieved reimagining and then creating that world that you are reimagined um, yeah. And I do think there are steps to be taken that go beyond reimagination, um, which I feel like a lot of us do get caught on um, step or we get kind of stopped on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there are ways that we um, can ask uh, indigenous and black and people of color um, how we can best be partners in that um, yeah. and not centering ourselves. But I think, I think this is a, brilliant conversation, brilliant step in the right direction for that. Yeah. And I think kind of going back to a bit of what we talked about earlier, but I think, you know, black and indigenous people have been creating new things and, and, and offering solutions and suggestions 
on the way forward. And I think as white people, like myself speaking, you know, especially as a white male, I think our, my job specifically is to join in with the work that's already being done and not just like trying to do something all on my own. Again, that classic like individualism, right? Right. Like not co-opting the work. Right. Exactly. It's not about co-opting the work and it's actually about a joining with rather than, you know, so um, how do we do that in a creative way? And that's kind of what I'm wrestling with right now. That's where I'm at. Do you have any, um, not to, not truly put you on the spotlight, but do you have any um, Instagram accounts that are by black indigenous people of color that you like to support or would like to give a little shout out to? Oh, yeah. Um, I really like uh, Drew Hart. He's an author. Um, he's part of one of the hosts of uh, Inverse Podcasts. Mm-hmm. He's uh, just a phenomenal individual. He's got a couple books um, that I highly recommend people read. Um, his his work is just so valuable. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, for everyone who is listening, of course, we'll put all of the info in the description of the episode. Um, we'll be sure to put the Decolonized Christian uh, Instagram and links all in the bio or the description as well, as always. Um, and as always, we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time. Bye. bye.